Hello, it's Marzana Farana Sherlock, and you're listening to Just Stories Podcast, a podcast where I hope to create a space where people feel comfortable enough to tell their stories that are part of their personal history, where my guests invite us to get to know their special places, where you, the listeners, hear stories that are not in the history books. Nevertheless, they have just as much importance in the lives of those who have a conversation with me. I seek random stories told by random people. Today, I would like to welcome Carl McCray, a proud Highlander who lives in the beautiful city of Edinburgh, professional musician, artist and teacher based in Leith. He is a freelance creative who used to work as a teacher in special education until 2017, where he broke free and started his freelance work. Carl will introduce us to a place that I believe is close to most of us, if we are lucky enough to have it. Hi Carl, thank you for your time and agreeing to this recording. Thank you for inviting me along, that's really kind of you. Carl, you've chosen a place that I think each of us could relate to in some way. Can you paint a picture of your space and the place that we'll be talking about today? It looks very much like I think how I am inside. So the creative brain that resides in my body, I think is splurged all over this place. So in colour, in fixtures and fittings, the inside and the outside of it. Part of the outside is not at all what I would have expected myself to do, or not at all what I suppose the man in his early 20s when he bought it didn't expect to be living in it. Thought he might be in something a little bit different, but this space now on the inside is very much who that man is. Can you remember the first sounds that you would associate with this space? I don't think I can. I don't think I can. Well, maybe one of the first sounds that I would have associated with it when I saw it was me sighing and not sighing in a happy way. Sighing in a... (sighs) Really? Kind of way? Really? Is that what this is? Okay. And not really knowing what I was going to do. Well, knowing what I wanted to do, but not knowing whether I had much choice in the matter or not. Who knows? The initial impression, at least from outside, maybe inside as well, it sounds like huge disappointment in a way. Massive disappointment. Crushing. I would even say almost crushing disappointment. That sounds quite dramatic. And in terms of the sounds right now, because you're in that space, what are the sounds that you associate and absolutely create the place for you so you can feel safe and you're happy? The sounds that would happen in here, well, actually, first and foremost, the animals that can be in this space make it very, very happy. The silence that's in this space... Even just now, so if I just stop and I hear absolutely nothing, I might hear the ticking of my clock. I have a huge love for time and timing, and I can hear that. But the almost deafening silence, I think, is the thing that I absolutely adore about it. Like, it's the one thing that I just kind of think, wow, this could be in the middle of nowhere. That's how quiet it feels. Silence 
what does it give you? Because in the world today, we are absolutely overloaded with everything. The silence, I suppose, and that's probably evolved over time. Silence for me has allowed me to be able to sit with me and not be scared of me. So I actually really love silence where I can go inside and into my mind and, and go, I'm, I think I'm very much at peace. You know, I mean, there are times when I'm not, absolutely. But the majority of the time, I could sit for a good 45 minutes to an hour, just sit in that complete silence and not do anything else other than maybe be inside my head and not in the bad ways that I used to be inside my head. I absolutely love it. And it's already giving us so many directions that that conversation will go into. Before we reveal to our listeners what place you're talking about, what tastes do you remember, the first ones? And if you don't remember any, what tastes are right now really important to you? Wow, that's a huge... That's a huge thing. Tastes. So when you taste, you mean physical taste, or do you mean taste as in what is my taste? Physical, and then we can move to what is your taste. Taste is a really difficult one. I don't know how I would describe it as the physical taste. I don't remember the first taste. Maybe the first smell, and the first smell would have been musty. Definitely. Musty and old and unlived. I suppose the smell now, well, the smell currently, that would be of spring. There's definitely a smell of spring in the place just now, which I love because I hate winter. Oh, I don't hate winter, but I hate January and February. If I could go and hibernate from the 26th of December till the middle of March, then that's what I would do. But this smell of spring or this taste of spring, this thing that I can get is in here because I've invited it in. And that just makes seems to make... The next kind of six, seven weeks, eight weeks, that little bit more bearable. I think the way how you're describing that, you've mentioned silence. You've mentioned somewhere in between the happiness that animals that are around you bring. You mentioned that first impression and that sight sound. You're talking about home because you've got certain perception of you. As a person, I just wanted you to explain a wee bit more why home is so important to you, and especially the one that initially you thought, is that it? I think for me, eh, well, especially in the last year, we've not had much choice but to stay at home. And I'm ever so grateful that, that the home that I have to live in is really beautiful. It's really lovely and warm and enveloping, and it cares for me. I have many friends who come into the space and when they come into it are instantly lifted and just go, what a beautiful place to be in. When they come in, they feel really welcomed and they feel warmth. And I don't think that's just from me doing it. It's just that there's a feeling of warmth and kindness within this space. And I think that has to do with the fact that I've really worked really hard at that. And that's also to do with me working really hard on me. I think when I first saw it, I was really disappointed because I was a professional, I was a teacher, you know, and I was thinking, you know, I'm a teacher, I'm 20, I think at that point, 22, 23 years old, and I should be buying a really nice tenement flat in beautiful Edinburgh. The intention was to be in Leith, so I knew that's where I was going to be, but I should be in a beautiful tenement flat, and, you know, I've got this kind of status almost to live by, and the reality of it was back in 2003 that financially that just wasn't going to be possible because it was too expensive back then. So... I had to kind of go with what was on offer. It's more than big enough for one person and two people have
have lived in here before but me a dog a medium-sized dog and a cat and you know I could, i'm sure i could fit another couple of dogs in i'm pretty certain i could so yeah and but over the time that this has evolved because it's become mine and i've changed my mindset but i've changed my mindset on who i am and therefore the building has moved with me and i've not always stayed here i rented it out and that's a really interesting one because when i did when i handed the keys over for it to be rented out i walked away and said i'll see you again soon and little did i know what that was going to mean but i think i did know what that was going to mean what did it mean well it meant i was coming back so i went away for not quite four years and then moved back to it and was really grateful because our relationship had come to an end and a job had come to an end and I was just changing my life. Probably started the proper journey in my life ongoing. What is it that I'm doing? Why am I doing what I'm doing? And is it bringing me any joy? And it wasn't. I was chronically depressed at the time, severely depressed and quite suicidal feeling. And what is it that I really need? And then trying to discover this kind of like, what's enough? And then what really is enough? So I started peeling back lots of layers and discarding a lot of things. And that included financial things and included burdens. So I got rid of my car, got rid of all of these things and then started just really focusing on what is it that I need to survive? And then how will that allow me to create the career that I want to have? And the space that I live in, I work in as well. And currently, just now, obviously, I'm working full-time in that space. So it was really important, as the home has evolved, that it's become this place that where work and life can be lived, but I can create some degree of separation with it. But actually, I don't know how much separation I truly want from it, because my career and my business is me. So, you know, even thinking about, like, hiring people to do stuff, I'm too much of a control freak, maybe, probably, possibly, don't know. Yeah, I am. Probably am. But I'm also all really aware that my product is actually sold because of me and because of my reputation and because of how I do things. And as I've discovered who I am, especially as a teacher, it's not about having a product that says this will solve everything because, you know, we realise that things are still not solved. No matter how far we've come down, things are still not solved. There's still children missing out and there's still children struggling. But what I can do is I can trigger conversations and then trigger questions within yourself and then maybe have you look at yourself internally and going, what is it that I could do that could make this different? So trying to explain to people that I will give you an idea of what I do, but I can't expect you to do what I do because you are not me and I am not you. But if you take my idea and then make it yours and turn it in on itself and then add yourself into that mix and then bring it out there, then you're going to have something else that will allow a different outcome. The physicality and the environment of home, it should be safe space. It's not safe for everybody. And you were talking about that relationship with your home and with yourself. And I don't even think home was a safe space for me at, at times in my life. This has not been a safe space because I wasn't safe for myself. And then what I was inviting into the space was not becoming safe. And I know that the neighbours that I had when I first lived here, some of them were not accommodating at all and actually were really quite scary. You know, I had major problems with upstairs neighbours for a long time. It's funny how they were there during pretty much most of my dark times. And now that I'm in the much brighter and, and clearer times, I have this really a spectacular set of neighbours who are just really safe and really quiet. Is that a coincidence? That's a really good question, because is it? I don't know. I'm a spiritual person. I believe that I'm a Christian. I'm quite an active member of a church, very traditional, but it's very forward-thinking and truly, I think, puts the people at the heart, and I mean all people, not just certain people, put people at the heart. And 
I believe that there's got to be more to this life than just me and you. There's so much more to it all. There has to be energies and, and other things bringing stuff together. It probably isn't a coincidence at all. In fact, it's not a coincidence at all that that is how this space is now. It's definitely not. I wanted to ask you that transformation, the physical transformation of the place itself, your dark moments, how both of those things were shaping when you were asking yourself the big questions. Can you paint a picture of that journey, physical and then your dark spaces and going towards something that I hear is happy place with possibly your faith being really important part of that as well. It's an ex-council flat. So, you know, in this country, a lot of people who live in council or ex-council or social housing get a very hard press. I'm the son of a family who were brought up in a council house. You know, I was brought up in a council house in the far north of Scotland. I wasn't so aware of it as a child because the village that I came from was so small that you know, none of us looked at anybody else and thought, oh, you're really poor. We might have looked at some people and thought they are really rich. We never felt that we were any lesser than anybody else in our area and certainly weren't treated like that at school or I don't remember being treated like that at school. But when I came to live in the city, the disparity, especially in a city like Edinburgh, which has the most spectacular architecture and then some of the most brutal, brutalist nonsense going around. I think I probably felt like I was the poor relation. Even though I was a teacher, even though I was a music teacher, even though I was all of these things, I think I maybe latched on to the, but you're still just a poor council boy from a poor family. We weren't a rich family, it was a big family. So that, you know, kind of like thought process was always there. And it only started to change. I actually became physically very unwell in 2007 when I found out I had hepatitis B. And I suppose 2007 would have been my starting point in kind of like transformation. But the real transformation was to come probably 10 years later. I had hepatitis B, I was in hospital and I was extremely ill and was told, we will know whether you're going to survive this or whether there's going to be major implications. And thankfully, I cleared it and became naturally immune to hepatitis B and that was fine. I just had a new kitchen installed in the flat. And I remember when the kitchen went in, I remember thinking, oh, right, okay, this is different. And actually, I think I really like this space. I'm liking this space more now because I'm beginning to find how I live in it and how I want to live in it. So I spent three months kind of recovering, but recovering in a space that felt much safer and much nicer than it had done before. So that was quite good. And then I kind of found my now ex-partner met him about three months later and life just kind of changed and evolved and moved on and things at school I was beginning to get noticed for the work that I was doing and then I was applying for promotion and I ended up getting promotion and, and that was all good and and there was a voice at the back of my head and a voice that came from my best friend's grandmother who always said to me Carl you're more than just what you're doing here you're more than this career she had passed she was always just really pro my creativity and I don't think I really was pro my certainly at that time my musical ability I don't think I was terribly pro it at all in fact I was very 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 hard on it even though I knew I was a good music teacher I still thought I was a really dreadful musician which is really messed up and I got promotion and, and I was desperate I was hungry for promotion I'm hungry to climb the ladder hungry to earn more money hungry to earn more money so that I could 
afford to pay for the lifestyle that I was making myself fall into, which was a rabbit hole all of its own, as well as everything else, thinking I was climbing in the wrong direction. And I think I knew, and I don't think I was prepared for what it was, was yes, it was meant to be, because it was me- it was actually meant to end very quickly after it started, because the actual reality was, this is never what you were meant to be. I had moved out of the flat and had gone off to live with my partner. I was out in Livingston at that time. And then we had moved to Linlithgow, but I'd rented this place out and I applied for a promotion and I got the first one that I applied for and I took it like a stubborn mule. I took it. I was like, yeah, of course I'll take it. And I went to it and it was just horrifying. The whole thing was utterly horrifying. And I broke really really, really badly and I ended up being off work with chronic stress. I would say it was a bit of a nervous breakdown. I just packaged it all up and I was like, I'm leaving, I'm not going to stay in that school, I'm going to move on and I'm going to do my own thing. And at that point I was starting my business, I was going to do consultancy work, I was going to teach privately. Basically I was saying, I'm going to take everything, anything that's given to me, I'll take. So I was doing that, but then I went back to work at the school that I was in before, day and a half contract, and then as that went forward for two years, I realised that I was biting off more than I could choose for my own business stuff and I was still chasing the money to replace the money that I'd lost in the promotions and I realised I was just in a really unsustainable lifestyle that that was killing me financially and killing me mentally and my relationship unfortunately at that time was coming to an end and then I just ended that relationship and nine months later had the full-blown crash. That was just when I really crashed and antidepressants and intense counselling and all of that thing. But through that, I was able to start to rebuild. And that's when this space really came into its own. This home became that place, that safe place to completely rebuild. So that's what I did. And as I was rebuilding, I found I was brought up in the Church of Scotland as a child. I'd always had a faith. I was briefly part of the Metropolitan Community Church, which was a church for LGBT people that was set up in San Francisco in the 60s. There was a branch here in a church in the centre of town. And then as I was having this massive breakdown and I was having a very suicidal, I had been on the phone to the Samaritans twice. And then in the morning I was on the phone to them again. The person said to me, when you last felt like this, where did you end up going? And it was, that was just a trigger enough. And it was trigger enough for me to go, <gasps> church. And I know church is now part of Augustine United Church, part of the United Reformed Church. I knew that the MCC church had kind of come into that on the Sunday morning. And I just said to her, I know where to go. A service starts in 15 minutes. It's a safe place. It's a church. I know it's a safe place. I'm going. And so I hung up the phone and I got there and I expected to see people that I knew, but I didn't. And I was crying and I was like, run away, run away, run away, run away. And then I thought, no, you were brought here for a reason. Go in, sit down, just sit for the service. So I sat not facing anybody, cried for the whole service, didn't stand up for any of the hymns or anything like that at all. And then just after the service had finished, a hand came and kind of like rested on my shoulder. And this person said, Carl McRae. And I turned around and I was just a you know red mess. And it was at that moment that I realised, well, she just said, right, oh, would you like a cup of tea? And I just stopped crying and went, yes, I really would like that. And at that very moment, at that at absolutely at that moment, I knew that I had come to this place that was going to be, that I was going to be saved. That, you know, whether not, I'm not saying saved by God. What I'm saying is like, I knew that no matter how bad my life was going to get in the future, I was going to be okay because I had found my place in the world, not just in that building, but in my home and in my head. And this brokenness is completely allowed. And why shouldn't I be broken? Because that these things happen and I can rebuild this brokenness and this brokenness can be rebuilt in a completely different way. And so that was in 2015. 
15 and it just made such a difference it made such a difference to me and then i spent you know the next couple of years just really working on what it was to be me and how to be me and how to be authentically me and how to not be the stressed me and the fearful me and the scared of me and and the scared of my past and the scared of my future and scared of my present and to the point that eventually in 2017, I had enough strength to go, I don't want to be a teacher in school anymore. I don't want to work in schools. I don't need to work in schools. They're actually not a safe place for me to be. It's not a safe building to be in. It's not a safe environment for me to be in. My safe environment is, is, is much bigger than this. When I did it, any fears that I had afterwards of anything in life was just like, they're gone. I do get scared now, you know, I'm not terribly scared. I do get very anxious. I have some very, very, very anxious days. But I just know that that's remnants of past behaviours as opposed to the reality of, of my here and now and my future. And then when I really thought about my past, and especially in this last year, my, I had a relationship, a lovely relationship with a lovely guy come to an end. That didn't become devastating or broken or explode into things that my past would have allowed it to explode into. But when I look at my past, despite how dark a place I might have been in, I was always provided with enough. Like enough always came. So my home was enough. My life, my brokenness actually is enough because that's okay. And financially, I've always earned enough. And I've always had enough well health to go about and do stuff. And then when I start looking at it from that point of view, it was just like, ah, so no matter how bad it gets, I know I have enough to see that through. And that's a huge transformation. For me, that's a huge transformation. And so the space that I live in is a one bedroom flat. It has a bedroom to sleep in, a living room to live in, a kitchen to cook in, and a bathroom to clean in. And I've got a garden to garden in. That's more than a lot of people have in this city because of the way people have to live in tenements and you know, multi-living in different areas. I think it's enough. And now I really realize, you know, that I have more than enough. I have a studio. So my living room is now a complete studio. So there's more than enough space to hold classes, to teach in. You know, I can have four or five people come to my sewing classes in here. I can teach in it. I can work in it. I can play in it. I can sit in it. And I still have space for a living space. And I still have space for a bedroom to sleep in and I still have a bathroom where I could do all the stuff that you need to do in the bathroom and I have ample storage for everything and it's like oh, right okay so it's about realizing I really do have enough in this life to live. This is Just Stories Podcast. I'm Marzena Farana Sherlock and I meet with people to find out about stories and places that are part of their history. I seek random stories told by random people. Today I'm talking to Karl about what does it mean to be authentic and how his home became his safe and creative space. We will also hear a recording by Karl, which is a piece of music that he called The Stars of Lockern Head, written for friends for their wedding around 12 years ago. What I'm hearing is there is very little division between Karl that is at home and Carl that is at work, and then Carl that might be somewhere else. I loved hearing the discovery of yourself. If you were to pick up the most important bits that you've learned how to discover yourself, what would you say? Because I think despite the fact if we say that or not, all of us reach that point when we're trying to find the authentic me. 
I think we spend a lot of our life looking for the next thing. And I, my God, I did. So when's the next iPad come out? Because I'm buying it. When's my car due to be upgraded? Because guess what? I'm upgrading it. It is almost like running away or running after. It's about chasing. So, you know, and, and that's what I was doing. I was chasing. And I still have moments probably now where I maybe do that sort of thing, but I can normally stop myself. But it was about that don't need to chase after the next thing. And actually, the reality is the chasing of the next thing is wasteful. If people haven't learned this in this last year, wasteful has caused what's happening now. You know, being wasteful, I think, is a major driving force behind the fact that we've had this pandemic and about people wanting instant gratification and wanting to buy in, in the multitude, ending up genetically modifying things left, right and centre and surprised that something like COVID 19, you know, pops up its little head going, ha ha, guess what? I'm a terrible byproduct of all the crap that you're consuming. And unfortunately, this is, I'm going to get you. That sort of thing does kind of really worry me. I think what I ever, only ever really craved, and especially when I was career focused, what I only ever craved was my holidays or was my time to be at home sitting in front of the television vegging. And when I realized that that's what I was doing, then why am I not aiming to have a life that involves all of that as much of my time as I possibly can. Why don't I try and get something like that to be part of my working life so that it's not the thing I escape to, it's the thing that I can be in more and more and more and hopefully get paid for it. And that was kind of like my trigger point for me to really examine who I was, how I was doing it, and how I wanted to live it, both personally and professionally. And like you said, the Carl who works, and the Carl who socialises, and the Carl who has quiet time is no different. And so as a creative, and as a musician, and as a teacher, I made a really conscious decision that I wasn't going to be the teacher that was teaching the grade eights and the performers of the future. Possibly because I don't feel like I'm that. And it's not about, I don't think I'm good enough for that. It's about, I am happy with what I can do musically. I love what I do musically. I love how I express myself musically. And that is more than enough for me. And that's what I want to pass on to children. Get to where you want to get to, but do it with love and always wanting to do it with love and always wanting to enjoy it. You can't love anybody else if you don't love yourself first and that is another really powerful statement what interests me home as a space that you're creating i hear that you've managed to create a space that you feel comfortable even with the current restrictions or lockdown that covid brought but also what i'm hearing you've said initially that it's very welcoming space so it seems to me again that your home is also based to build community completely naturally whoever comes into my home is more than welcome to come into my home I have no prejudice for anybody coming in that space. And even if it's the postman who's popping a letter through the door, you know, he deserves a hello, a good morning, how you doing? And I do have that with my postman. The very least I can do is open my door and pick up my parcel and go, thank you very much, I hope you're keeping safe. Because why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you ask that of people? We're so lost in being inward thinking and possibly being really stressed. And it would be nice to see more people just stopping and just being thankful for whoever, whatever, however. A wee bit more of kindness, I guess. But also, I think, Carl, people don't do it because we close ourselves behind the door of our houses. And it's very rarely that we even notice neighbours. Did you find your way around that? 
Or is it mainly that when people come in, they are really welcome? When I first lived here, I would absolutely not welcome anybody on the door unexpectedly. Part of that was because I wasn't happy in myself and I couldn't have people unexpectedly turn up in my space. Partly it was because maybe I hadn't tidied and if I hadn't tidied, how shameful that would be. And then the other part of it was deeper, darker things that have happened to me in my past that if I let you in, you might hurt me. I don't think I can do that. So I can only let you in when I prearranged it. And because I've managed to expel that and free myself from that burden of being hurt by other people, I would absolutely answer the door. Obviously can't let people in just now, but I would absolutely answer the door and welcome anybody in at any time if they just turned up, even if it was in the middle of the night and I was half asleep and somebody needed me. This is fine, this is a safe place to be. Please do come in. I will do what I can. When I first lived here, my neighbours, the old lady who lived in the flat next door, I got on brilliantly well with her, but she was a typical staunch, kind of lether, rough as, as rough can be, kind heart, hated my cat, told me that I ever bucking let the cat out, she'd kill it, that sort of thing. But still, you know, a heart of gold, you know, I knew I could leave the flat and she would keep an eye on it and nothing would happen. But everybody else, there was no relationship with anybody else. And now, funnily enough, next door, there's a violin maker and his wife who is an artist. And they are really good friends of mine. And we sit in the garden and we put the world to right. And we have cups of tea and we put our chimeneas on and we spend New Year actually uh, taking the bells in. And then there's a lovely couple now in the flat next door. And that's all to do with the fact that I opened myself up, that I stopped being closed. I really enjoyed the anonymity when I first lived in the city as well, because I come from a village where everybody knew everything about you and all of your business. I always found that really difficult. But now I'm not even ashamed of people knowing any of my business, because there's nothing that I do that I'm ashamed of. Not anymore. There would have been. a Lots of the stuff that I do now I would have been ashamed of. Even just performing in my flat. I would never play music. I would never play my instruments, my violins, nothing in this flat when I first lived here until the last three or four years when I've really started to embrace that and not worrying about creating that sound.
until I really opened myself up, I don't think I would have made those friendships and relationships. And now that I am, I've even got to know a few houses further up. That's exciting. It's lovely to think, actually, I am this community. You know, like I am the community, like next door is this community, not as an I am the community and you'll gather around me. And I don't think I probably ever felt that. I always felt like I was a foreigner. I always felt like I was an incomer. But I think that was me making me feel like an incomer. And the more I made myself feel like that, I think the more the people thought I was. Whereas if I'd just embraced it more back then, maybe it would have been a bit different. Who knows? It's the right thing then and it's the right thing now. No regrets. It actually genuinely fills my heart with joy. I can't stop smiling at what you're saying because you've touched it, like the gathering, the community. I can imagine the jam sessions going on in the gardens. Coming into your home, apart from the safe, welcoming feeling... I've got the impression that people not only will be asked about cup of tea, but also would you like to use the sewing machine? You've got instruments that people come and learn and play. And how did this involve with your space or how the space influenced that or how did it all happen after you started opening yourself on others? I think... That's a really difficult question to answer. I always used to have parties, and I used to have wild parties in this flat. And I mean really wild, loud, like 30 people into the flat. And we'd have parties and get very drunk. It was always a party pad. Always, always, always was. I think the reason it was a party pad was because I tried to cover up. It was a time for me to release and cover up and hide from what I was really wanting to deal with. And now it's not a party pad at all. I wouldn't have a party in here. I, I don't drink at all now. I don't even know if I can tell you how it managed to evolve and become that safe space. I had a studio for a while. I had a converted shipping container just on Leith Walk for about a year. And it was lovely to have, but the reality was it was too far away from home. And I had the dog and I had the cat and, you know, I couldn't leave the dog for terribly long on her own. So it meant I could only really be away for five or six hours. And and then I started realising that it was not really the nurturing space that I thought it was going to be. And that wasn't what I needed and that what I needed to be was in the home because that was my safe place, my nurturing space and where I felt most comfortable. And so I brought it all back home and gosh, am I glad that I did because I got it home just before the pandemic struck and it would have been really difficult to work. I couldn't have worked in that space and then I would have had nothing here to work with and then that would have been a disaster. But just coming up to a year ago, I held my first art class in the space, sewing class in the space. And the four people that came in just said how warm and safe and... Because sometimes you go to classes and you go into a space and it is just a classroom space and you do the workshop, but actually it's not quite... There's a juxtaposition in that space that just makes it not quite the creative space that you think it might be. Whereas in here, they felt really creative because they can see all my creativity. All my instruments hang on the walls. I don't have any instruments packed up in boxes or in their instrument cases. They're all on the wall and they're all there to be had so they can be picked up and played at the drop of a hat if I feel like doing it. Any of the artworks I support, I buy a lot too much probably of other people's work. It's really important to be supporting artists. I'm not even ashamed to put my own work up. If I really like it, why shouldn't I put it up and enjoy it for a while before I sell it? My artwork is sewing work, so what you see on my Facebook page is embroidery. What is it? Can you explain? Because I have no idea. I had an exhibition in September where I stitched my way around Edinburgh and I was meant to stitch 52 buildings, didn't get quite that many done. 
but where I was doing the architecture and what I do is I take pictures and, and look at things and then I start sketching just line drawings of buildings and things like that. So I was doing that with my buildings and then those lines become my stitches. So I transfer that onto tracing paper, which then gets put onto card, onto watercolour card, and then I use an awl to stab along my lines and things like that. And then what would be the pen line drawing is actually stitched so the cotton thread that I use is the pen. And then I put in things like gold leaf, silver leaf, copper leaf, or I do colored card or vintage papers or a mixture of things that kind of go into the blend to create that kind of almost monochromic kind of look to my work. Some of it's a bit more colorful and stuff like that now, but yeah. And then I can layer it up. So I'm, I'm doing a workshop on creating a daffodils. I could easily draw the daffodil and then just give you a piece of yellow card get you to stick it on the paper and then just stitch round the daffodils kind of outline round it but I'm not you're taking individual pieces of yellow card and you're layering it through your stitching so that you give it a 3d kind of effect so it looks like it's got its petals um, and everything in it so yeah wow I would never say from looking at the pictures it was difficult to yeah, no it's hard to see to see yeah when you see it in real life, people are like, oh my goodness. And then when people hear, actually, that's all stitch. And it's very modern. It's a modern interpretation on embroidery. In my mind, you know, as, as much as I want to do all my creativity, I also want to earn money. And so I was trying to find a different way in stitching and embroidery. Because if you do real traditional embroidery with all the traditional embroidery techniques, it's hours and hours and hours and days and days and weeks and weeks for one piece. And you can't charge six, seven thousand pounds for what well, you could if you were the, at the highest of your game and I'm not so that's fine but how can I create work that expels this energy and expels this kind of creativity in me but also allows me to bring it to people and make it affordable for people to buy or affordable for people to learn and that's what I've done so they can see all of that creativity in that space and then they start feeling you know that kind of genuineness that the class that I'm offering them is not just about come and pay me money and learn how to stitch this piece it's about come yes you have to pay me money because that is how life works we need to, we need to earn money but come and be in my space for the whole day and treat it like your home. This, my home is your home. So come in, sit at my dining table and, and my dining table is my work table as well. If I was to have people round, my dining table's in this space here. People can sit and have dinner in my workspace, but it just feels nice to do that. Come and sit on my couch and stitch. You know, if you're working at the table and then you've got something you're just going to stitch, go over to my couch in the other room and sit in it and just be there. We don't have to all be sitting around this table and just be part of that kind of envelope warmth. I actually invited them to bring their lunch so that they can eat their lunch within the space. And actually somebody brought stuff and said, can I cook? And I said, actually, yes, I have a hob. I have an oven. Why, of course you can use it. Why wouldn't you? And there's my kettle and here's mugs. And don't wait for me to ask if you want a cup of tea, feel free to pick yourself up and go and make yourself a cup of tea. And actually that's much easier for me if you just go make it yourself because you'll make it right and I might not make it right. And you know, there's a warmth and a genuineness in that that allows them to create what's at the heart of them as well, maybe. I think that's so genuinely important when I'm doing the work that I'm doing that you're seeing me in all my guises. I've always, always had problems with people who put a professional face on and have a personal face. And especially when the two are so vastly different, it scares me and it doesn't allow me to trust. I don't trust anybody who's like that at all. Somebody who comes into their workspace and shows no emotion because something bad has happened to them 
the night before or there's something bad been happening for a few months but they come into work with that kind of steely kind of look i don't know if i believe your work is real when you do that and actually you might think that you're not bringing any of the emotion in but the chances are you're bringing it in in the completely negative way of bringing it in and you maybe don't realize it and it could be quite harmful and i think that's the kind of barriers that i want to break down and the other thing I would say on this as well is I'm a qualified teacher of the visually impaired and special needs. I've had to learn to unlearn everything when it comes to work because how I was taught to teach wasn't going to be able to help me teach these children. And so for me, breaking down barriers in every sense, in every way, breaking down barriers for children with additional support needs, breaking down barriers for LGBTQI people. I mean, I don't do a huge amount of work in that, but I am I am a gay man. So therefore, simply being a gay man is me breaking down barriers. Being a Christian and a gay man is me breaking down as many barriers as I can. Having this conversation is about me being honest about my feelings and my thoughts and what's in my heart and what's in my mind. That's beginning to break down barriers. To talk about mental health, poor mental health, suicide, abuse, rape, all of these things. If those things are talked about, it becomes less shameful it becomes less taboo. And I know I've had conversations where people have gone, can you please stop talking about that now? And not because of their own personal experience of having suffered it, but because of the, you can't talk about these things. That's not right. And I'm like, that's why these things still happen, because we're not talking about them. So for me, my home, my space is an absolute honest account of who I am inside, outside and all sides. And that sums up the conversation beautifully. I don't think I could summarize that more. That honesty, that willingness to open those doors for people to come. I think your home, from what I'm hearing, is that vehicle to build relationships. And you've given an amazing encounter of that. Thank you. Thank you. I've described it with the honesty that I can and with the authentic me. This is who I am. Accept it. Don't accept it. It doesn't matter. I don't need permission. Thank you for sharing all your experiences and how the home played a role in that discovery journey. Thank you. No, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for letting me share my story. This was the fourth episode of Just Stories Podcast. Thank you for listening. You can tune in to Just Stories Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean platform. In the next episode, we will meet Eva, who in photography found an escape from mental health issues that had been burdening her for some time. In the meantime, if you or someone you know would like to tell your story and show a place close to your heart, get in touch on Just Stories Podcast at gmail.com. See you in two weeks.